So, okay, uh, thanks for coming this afternoon. My name is Jerry. I'm with the Sirius Organization that I haven't met yet, and it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker today. Uh, Doug Rapp is the president of Refori Corporation, and uh, Refori's flagship product is called DEFCON Cyber. It's a scalable cybersecurity risk and awareness tool that offers small business enterprises local expertise. But where I know Doug best is the fact that he is also president of the Cyber Leadership Alliance. That's a nonprofit that uh, helps provide leadership in cybersecurity and security and Internet of Things around the state of Indiana. He's been working very hard to try to draw cybersecurity organizations to the state of Indiana and was instrumental in bringing a major conference to Indianapolis coming up in October, uh, CyberTech. So he was, he was part of the team that helped bring that to, uh, to Indianapolis. He also has been a longtime friend and partner of Sirius. Uh, a couple years ago, he won the Pillar of Sirius, which is an award we give to the non-university person that has the biggest contribution to Sirius. So we're uh, delighted. Contribution, not like check. That's right. So, That's right. That no, in lieu of cash, we gave him the surprise. <laughs> but uh, I just also want to mention he's an entrepreneur in residence for Purdue University down at the Westgate uh, location in particular. Uh, lifelong Hoosier, former military officer, combat veteran, and I like this last one, cybersecurity optimist. So with that, I'll turn it over to Doug. Thanks, Jerry. I appreciate it. Well, thanks, uh, thanks for having me here today. It's, uh, it's good to see all of uh, uh, all you Boilermakers tonight. Um, I'm going to tell you a little bit about myself. I was 34 years in the uh, United States Army. I was a knuckle dragger for a long time. I was an infantry officer. And uh, towards the end of my career, <clears throat> I had the opportunity to, uh, uh, to work at the state headquarters in Indiana. And uh, our adjutant general for the state of Indiana, uh, Major General Umbarger, great man, went out to uh, D.C. And D.C. was all, all abuzz talking about cybersecurity forces and about uh, the fifth dimensional warfare. And uh, he, uh, uh, General Umbarger, was kind of a visionary. And he came back in, in, in that quaint Indiana way. You know, he said, I want me some of those cyber troops. And uh, the majority of us kind of looked at each other because we really, you know, we were infantry and artillery guys and combat arms guys. And, and uh, you know, everybody kind of looked at this thing as a hot potato. But uh, in, in an um, uncommon moment of clarity, um, I saw the potential in what was happening with uh, cybersecurity and cyber forces and how uh, cyber was going to be a new dimension in warfare. So I jumped at the opportunity to, uh, to uh, take on the task of building the cyber assets for the military here in the state of Indiana, <clears throat> for the Indiana National Guard, the nominal team, um, Region 5 Cyber Protection Team, who just got back from a year at the NSA. Uh, so they're doing amazing things. But, um, but uh, tonight I'm going to talk to you a little bit about um, one of my biggest concerns, and that is, um, is the vulnerability of our utilities uh, and the application of modern warfare tactics uh, to the fifth dimension of warfare, um, the integration of cyber capability into what we consider traditional warfare. But I'm going to highlight uh, this by talking specifically about uh, water treatment. Um, so I can get a little bit more in, in depth on it. Um, but obviously the same thing applies to the power grid, to, to nuclear power, to all of the utilities that keep our country and our economy uh, rolling and our people safe. So, um, and I'm going to highlight it through an incredible exercise that was done here a few years ago in Indiana. 
at a place called Muscatatuck Urban Training Center in southern Indiana, um, which is a whole town that is owned by the Indiana National Guard and the United States Army uh, that also is connected with dark fiber and ICS and skated devices. So, so you look at this, uh, th this quote from the Ancient Mariner and look at some of the statistics here. I first became kind of interested in 2014 when some cybersecurity experts were doing experiments by setting up honeypots uh, that replicated utilities. And you can see the statistics in 2014 alone, uh, 74 attempts on just this experiment from everybody from nation states to hacktivists to cyber criminals <clears throat> that were trying to do everything um, to include adjust temperatures, control pressures, and affect the chemical makeup of, uh, of the additives to, to our drinking water. Um, in March 2016, a group that was a, a, a hacktivist group that was affiliated with Syria uh, infiltrated a water utility. Um, it's still not uh, been disclosed where that water utility was. People have a pretty good idea. Um, but they actually got into the IBM AS400 system that was installed in 1988. And they were able to adjust the chemicals uh, in, in that water treatment plant. It's a pretty scary thing. Um, 2014, um, the, I'm sorry, that should say 2018. In 2018, and this, this year alone, you know, the United States government accused the Russians of not only meddling with our elections, but also applying Cold War tactics um, to the cyber domain by actually hacking into, infiltrating, and placing malware inside our critical infrastructure. What's interesting about this, and if you look at just the water sector alone, 150,000 public water utilities in the U.S., all right. When water utilities became a thing in the U.S., they were pretty much unregulated. And as communities grew, as large uh, uh, neighborhoods grew, as cities grew, uh, these water utilities that were local to those communities popped up. And understanding the nature of business and the nature of government, the ICS, the industrial control systems, and the SCADA devices within those utilities, uh, you know, there's a cost associated with that. So in, in, in a climate where people don't like their taxes raised, you know, uh, utilities in general don't replace things that don't need replaced. You know, another philosophy, if it ain't fixed, or if it ain't broke, don't fix it. But what happened was we saw a technology boom. And within that technology boom, we saw things getting connected to the internet that were never ever designed to be connected to the internet. So the SCADA and ICS devices um, that are industry standard uh, out there, some of them are second and third generation SCADA and ICS devices that were never meant to be hooked up to the internet. But because the technology existed and we as, we as Americans in the world, we embrace technology and we love it, <clears throat> you know, uh, that's what we did. We embraced it. And you know the water treatment engineers, they wanted to be able to control process flows from their phone. So, so they do now. So we've connected first and second generations, 20, 30 year old ICS control, ICS devices 
to the internet. Now, knowing human nature, and, and for those of you who are, who are in this, this space, you know, the uh, um, inability to change passwords or update equipment or uh, leave, leaving ports open, not locking things down, you can imagine, um, and, and not having the ability to in-house the knowledge for security within uh, ICS and SCADA and, and these smaller utilities, you can imagine the vulnerabilities that, that are out there. So from a military guy, I became really fascinated with this, with this space, this, this space of cyber warfare. And it's commonly referred to the fifth dimension. I found this graph that, uh, that talks about the different principles of war and, and how we look at them. So these are, these are the, the tenets of warfare across uh, these five countries. And if you look at the former Soviet Union, and you think about what I just told you about uh, the Russians in 2018, putting things into our utilities, into our systems, um, much like the old espionage sleeper cells. Everybody know what sleeper cells, that concept? where they send somebody to the United States, they grow up here, they integrate into society, but they have an undying loyalty to, to the Soviet Union. So it's, it's, it's no different. It's, it's like setting a virtual IED inside a system, a virtual explosive in, inside a utility system. And it's, not a, it's not a new concept. Um, hackers have been doing that since the 80s. So, but on a holistic scale, as a tactic, as a tenant of warfare, or as an aspect of warfare, the you know countries and nation states are adopting those tactics and using modern tools such as cybersecurity tools uh, to to affect warfare. So um, traditionally, we think of uh, the guy on on the left. You know, the soldier on the left is what a traditional warrior is. But I can tell you, the battlefield is changing and it's shifting. And if you look at the picture on the right. And I'll show you some. I'll show you a picture of the facility down in southern Indiana. You'll see that the battlefield has greatly changed, and has vastly changed. From a personal experience, as as an infantry company commander in Iraq, there were computers everywhere inside my vehicles. They gave us situation awareness, told us where the friendly guys were, told us where the bad guys were firing from, and those systems can be and were spoofed and you know we had a lot of technology ourselves to shut down uh, a lot of capabilities um, whether it was just blanket uh, shutting down frequencies or whether it was going after specific electronic targets so so i i called myself a cyber optimist and and, and i and i say that because I get the great fortune of standing in front of people like yourselves who are studying things that I never thought to study and, and who have grown up as your cyber natives, the majority of us. There's just a couple of cyber concert, uh, converts in here, so, but, but I'm, I'm a convert. I didn't grow up with a computer. My first computer was a VIC-20 with a tape drive. So anybody remember tape drives, Jerry? Oh, yeah. So, so you know, you guys grew up in, in this era, and, and the way that you think and the way you approach problems, particularly from a multidisciplinary aspect, gives me encouragement that whatever bad things are poised to happen out there, that great minds like yours will be able to, 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 uh, to solve them. So I got uh, interested in multidimensional uh, exercises 
as a way for us to understand the modern battlefield. So using the concepts of modern military training <clears throat> and taking uh, red hats and making adversarial scenarios, um, I get, became very interested in training for cybersecurity. So if you look at this slide, this was only a few years ago when the military in isolation sat around and uh, sat around with a bunch of laptops in a circle and, and played capture the flag for cyber. And that was a one-dimensional aspect of, of the training for cyber warfare. And I'll tell you, there's still a lot of work to do with the military in deciding how they train uh, forces and how they fight cyber wars. <clears throat> it's, it's a never-ending uh, sea of technology and, and, and the threats come from all different directions and they come at us so, so incredibly quickly that, um, that it's hard for even the best trained professionals to, to, um, to keep up with it. But, uh, you know, I went to a lot of early on cyber, uh, cybersecurity exercises, and this is pretty much what it was, you know, very simplistic, very one-dimensional, only military people sitting in a room. Nobody wanted to share anything. Um, and uh, we know that that's not the way that the world works anymore. The world is a world of integrated threats, that makes no distinction whether or not you have a uniform or whether you don't wear a uniform. And increasingly, <clears throat> you'll hear it from the highest levels, Admiral Rogers, you know, some of the first pioneers in cyber warfare, you'll hear that security is a team sport. So I'm gonna to talk to you about a new type of training that we decided to pioneer here in Indiana, and that is complex cybersecurity training. And anytime while I'm talking, if you have questions and you want to know something, or feel free to, to reach out and ask. Um, I was very lucky to be part of a team that put together this exercise, the first of its kind, uh, in this facility. And it was a complex training exercise. And we think about complexity, you know, think of it almost in the multidisciplinary uh, mindset that you have for this class. We brought together utilities, private sector, government, military, law enforcement, and we, we, um, we forced them to work together. And when I say we forced them, um, not everybody was keen to come and take part in this exercise. Um, and, you know, vulnerabilities, you know, water utilities don't like people to know their vulnerabilities, all right? Particularly when they're governed by regulatory uh, obligations um, they don't want to disclose any vulnerabilities that they may have. <clears throat> so, but we took the approach that it was necessary, and um, we had the power of the governor's office and the regulatory commission to encourage um, the utilities to, to, to come, and most of them did willingly, but the, there, are, there are a few. So that's part of what made it complex. The, the second thing is, is we used full-scale facilities. So, and you'll see when, when I show you the map, we... We actually used a functional water treatment plant that was, uh, it's, it's in a loop system, so it takes water from one of the rivers, the Muscatatuck River, and it circulates it through the system and it pumps it back out into the river, so it's not actually servicing a community anymore, but it is 100% functional. Um, we took the SCADA and ICS devices from a Citizens Energy Group <clears throat> uh, plant that was being decommissioned, so it was not state-of-the-art, but it was industry standard, and that's a very important distinction, all right? You can go 
to uh, you know to the the conventions and see all the really cool ICS SCADA stuff that the water companies have, the utilities have. But remember, people don't like taxes. Utilities don't invest in equipment uh, if they're hesitant to invest in equipment if it means that they have to increase rates because that becomes a political battle at that point. So we had the full-scale facilities, and we actually got to see the physical, um, the physical effects. So one of the scenarios we'll talk about uh, real briefly is, uh, is a broken water pipe caused by a hammering effect. And we actually had a water pipe that, that uh, poured out into a basin. And as the hackers did what they did, you could see the physical effects on it. We also brought in um, uh, utility workers who had no clue what the scenario was that were part, uh, part of that also. So we had real hackers and real operators. When we say real hackers, we had red hats from two of the, uh, two of the best cybersecurity firms in Indianapolis, so from Rook and Pondurance. So we brought them in uh, with their vast experience, <clears throat> and we assembled teams from the utilities, and they were adversarial in, uh, in this exercise. Um, another reason it was complex is it met multiple requirements for all the participants. How do you get somebody to buy into potentially exposing their vulnerabilities? How do you get somebody to, how do you get the FBI to bring their forensics labs to, to the Midwest um, to do forensics on, on you know, this, this hack and then risk the embarrassment of them failing when they do their analysis. These are real complex things. So what you have to do is you have to figure out what are the problems that you can solve for people, all right? So, and we'll talk about uh, how what we did met multiple requirements, regulatory requirements, other requirements, training requirements for all the participants. And then the ability to integrate, the ability to integrate physical things, virtual things, uh, uh, you know, the vast number of, of organizations that were involved. All of those things made it so much more complex and so much more realistic than that slide, you know, where they're playing Battleship. So instead of just a bunch, few military guys sitting around in, in a closed loop, you know, playing capture the flag. So this is a list. I'm not going to go through all, all of the, um, all the people that were in there, but you can see, I think there's over 25 different uh, uh, agencies, entities, businesses, private sector, uh, state, local, national uh, government. Um, DHS at the national level was involved. NIST advised on it. I mean, it, it was just a, uh, it was an amazing ability of, of people coming together. When we put together this exercise, it began because three of us sat in a room at Rook Security, and, uh, and we really were having an in-depth discussion about the vulnerabilities of this. And uh, it, it, took, it took a lot of pressure you know, for, for us to get this thing off the ground and, and get people to buy into it. So the fact that we got over 25 different entities there was amazing, and, um, and they said it couldn't be done. So, of course, we had to do it. So I talked about how do you get people to take that chance? How do you get them to risk failure in a public forum? How do you get them to risk exposing uh, vulnerabilities uh, to, to other people? Imagine getting a utility and a regulatory authority in the same room in this type of exercise, 
All right. It was it was it was unheard of. Nobody's done it beforehand, and nobody's done it since. So, um, it was really about one thing, and it was about trust. So, we had to build an uh, a, a um, we we had to build an environment of trust, and we did that very specifically in, in specific ways. First of all, we had <clears throat> both Purdue University and Indiana universities were observer controllers for this. So they were not, uh, they were not, they had no agenda. They were ac purely academic in, in nature. So the evaluation and of the criteria was done by uh, uh, serious uh, uh, students and students here from Purdue University and from, from IU Informatics. And uh, so we, we, we had neutral people that had no interest in understanding or, or capturing any vulnerabilities. Um, so they weren't regulators, they weren't utility. We also created an environment where every piece of data that was collected about the exercise was turned over to the participant, to the team, the team that was there from the utility. Nothing at all was maintained, nothing was written down that wasn't handed over to, over to the team. Any information that that team chose to disclose during the after action review, they did so willingly. So it was entirely up to them. And because we took great pains to do that, it, and, and we also had secure facilities where we could do the debriefings with, with the teams, because we took great pains to do that, it, it really gave them you know, the understanding that we, we were not here to embarrass anybody. We weren't here to, uh, to uh, discover anybody's vulnerabilities. We were here to help them understand where they stand in, in a very complex security envi environment. Um, we had uh, a legal affairs team, which was comprised of uh, about seven different lawyers from seven different agencies. It by far was the most difficult thing that we did. So the hack itself took less time and less effort than it was to get seven lawyers to agree on something. So it was brutal. We came up with a non-disclosure agreement and uh, every participant was vetted through, uh, through the Department of Homeland Security and through InfraGuard. Does everybody know what InfraGuard is? InfraGuard's an extension of the, the FBI, uh, so they're kind of like a civilian core for the FBI. Um, they do a lot uh, uh, in, uh, in just assisting with you know, protection of critical infrastructure, and they, they, they funnel information about risks uh, to the FBI through that organization. But to be a member, anybody can join, but to be a member, they actually run a background check on you. So, so every participant had a, uh, a background check on them that was equivalent to a secret level uh, background check. So, uh, and then the final thing was, is I talked a little bit about the universities being the observers controllers. And that, the other part of that is, is we, we had to establish a neutral ground. And the neutral ground was the fact that the whole exercise was being sponsored by the state, the state of Indiana. And the operational uh, part of it was being organized by the Cyber Leadership Alliance, which is a nonprofit um, solely for uh, you know leadership within cybersecurity. Um, we had to integrate everybody into the exercise also, and everybody had to have a role. We originally started out with uh, with uh, some ambiguous roles, like you do this and I'll do that, and and what we came to understand is that. Just like any team building exercise, you have to pin responsibility on somebody and you have to assign roles and you have to keep people focused on those roles. That, uh, this this uh, exercise took us, uh, the CritX exercise took us about 18 months um, to do both phases of it. 
and even longer for the prep work on it. And we probably wasted six months worth of our time because nobody had specific roles, so nobody knew what the other person was doing. So it was one of our huge takeaways that everybody has to have a, a specific role within the exercise. The next thing we did is imagine that you have 20 people from 20 different countries, all right, and you want to communicate a message to them. When you think about different agencies out there, the United States Army, as one branch of the military, has its own terminology, uh, has its own acronyms, has its own customs. So the way that the United States Army communicates is very specific. So now imagine integrating the FBI into that. They have their own terminology, they have their own acronyms, they have their own methodologies. So we had to take those 25 plus members and we had to decide upon a common language to speak. And that language that we, that would, the training language that, that we adopted was the HCEEP approach, which is the Homeland Security uh, Evaluation uh, and Training uh, Methodology. So, so then we had to get 25 people schooled up on that language, but we were, we were able to do that. And by insisting on using that common language, um, we were able to make pros, uh, progress a lot, a lot quicker. Um, clear and defined objectives. Um, we started this exercise, we were going to do both water and electricity in this exercise. And we actually did that during the first phase of it, which was a tabletop exercise. But what we determined was it was way too complex. It was way, way too broad. And we wouldn't be able to get the level of detail that we wanted to, to really get people to think about their own vulnerabilities if we kept it that broad. So we narrowed it down to the four objectives that you see on the screen right now. <clears throat> and we very specifically had two exercise level. The first was the tabletop exercise where we discussed a lot of the issues and brought a lot of things out. And then the functional exercise, which is where we had hands-on. Um, the tabletop exercise was, you know, people have a tendency to kind of minimize tabletop exercises. But here's a great, here's a great lesson that we learned from the, the first tabletop from 16.1. And we, we had a bunch of, uh, I had all the government agencies, so I was facilitating the, the government agencies. <clears throat> and we were talking about power outages. And of course, Anybody who knows anything about resiliency or DHS or continuity, those things, you'll learn the number 72 is incredibly important. All right, 72 hours worth of fuel. All right, that's pretty much the standard when it comes to emergency preparedness and, and training. So have 72 hours worth of fuel to run your generators on hand so you can power your hospitals, your, uh, you know, your, your law enforcement, your government, uh, those, those things, those infrastructures. And then after 72 hours, have, you've got to have a contract with somebody to bring you more fuel after that. So interestingly enough, you know, we got to the point where I said, okay, 72 hours, your, your, your fuel's run out. Who's bringing you fuel? And around the table, I had about 15 people around the table. Around the table, out of 15 people, about 12 of them had the same vendor. All right, so what does that mean? We saw this in Hurricane Sandy when it hit the East Coast. When the fuel trucks started going to the East Coast and they got there, first of all, everybody had the same vendors. So, and when they got there, 
guess who was standing there directing traffic? It was the United States military. So it didn't matter who had a contract. You know, the military was making the decision where the fuel truck went. So don't minimize the the value of a tabletop exercise because some amazing things can come out. And, and uh, we worked through some of those issues. Um, the state has and the utilities here have worked through those issues now. Um, so we had 25 plus agencies. We had to determine what all the references were, what were all the regulatory and training references that went along with each one of those agencies. So you can see a list of all the ones that, uh, that we took into consideration. So some of them are based off of each other. So some of the AWWA stuff, which is the water authorities, are based off of NIST. So the terminology and the objectives and things are, are close to the same. So, but some of them are uh, wildly different. So um, what we had to do is take them all and crosswalk them. So based upon what we were trying to achieve, what were all of the items that were important to our participants? And you can see some patterns start to emerge. There's four very distinct columns where the majority of the organizations get value from using that scenario. So we crosswalked all of those. You can't be everything to everybody. And we picked out the common themes that would provide the most value to, uh, to every participant. Doesn't mean we didn't include some of the other, uh, the other goals and objectives, other training points, but those were the ones that we had to know those were the ones that were gonna bring the most value to everybody. So I wanna talk a little bit about the venue here. And um, as I mentioned before, Cybertropolis is a Back in the day when the United States thought that it was uh, uh, the right thing to do to institutionalize people with physical and mental disabilities, um, you saw small towns like this in Muscatatuck all across the United States. And what this facility was was a self-contained village, where uh, a self-contained town where, the, where people were institutionalized. And if you even look at the layout, you'll see that there's a lot of circles and there's a lot of curves that kind of lead back into the facility. And that was under the theory that if people got out and started to wander, they would wander right back into the town. So um, somewhere in our American consciousness, we decided that uh, uh, it wasn't right to institutionalize people. And we took people with physical and mental disabilities and reintegrated them into society through group homes and in other uh, local hospitals and, and things of that sort and left this facility empty. So for a dollar, the National Guard bought it from the state of Indiana and they decided to turn it into uh, a premier training venue for the United States Army. <clears throat> this facility, um, and I'll just describe it, you can see there's a, looks like a lake with a bunch of houses sitting in it. So that is a sunken village where um, they can fly helicopters in and chop holes in roofs and do rescues or scuba dive and those types of things. There's a downed aircraft, a derailed train, uh, I think five or six miles, probably more of tunnels. There's a stadium, an embassy, a working farm, a camel, sheep, um, crops growing, uh, a rubbleized village, a collapsed parking uh, structure for doing search and rescue, uh, and uh, a mock-up of both a Afghan, Afghani village and an Iraqi village um, for training for troops that were going to those theaters. And the core of it is connected with dark fiber. 
So the dark fiber is now running out to most of the, uh, the power plant, to the water treatment facility, which is what we used, functional water treatment facility. And there's a cyber range in there. Ivy Tech has a cyber academy uh, down there also. I know Purdue, special operations, a lot of people are doing a lot of research down in this facility. So we were very fortunate that we could use this facility. And um, you'll see on there, um, the water treatment plant is, uh, is pointed out. Um, the observation room where the workstations and the red teams uh, were at. And the field site is the site where I told you there was the pipe that came out of the ground into the basin where you could actually see the water from the water treatment plant, the effects of the water uh, for, to add to the complexity of the exercise. Um, as I mentioned before, are any of you familiar with SCADA ICS devices? So this, this level of detail may, may not be too important to you, but um, you, can, you can see what, what the components were to the industrial control systems and SCADA devices that, that uh, we had in there. And as I mentioned before, these devices were literally taken out of a functional water treatment plant that was being shut down um, one month and then reinstalled into the water treatment plant that we used uh, within the next few months. So. Uh, again, not state-of-the-art, but more importantly, industry standard. What you're going to find out in the wilds. Um, we built an exercise control room. Uh, we actually were able to mirror, mirror the PLCs and uh, keep track of, uh, all, of the, uh, uh, all of the screens for the teams. So we had the uh, workstations, observer workstations, we had a historical servers so we could retrieve all the, the data, the red team, and we had camera feeds from all the locations. We had cameras inside the water treatment plant. We had cameras at the field site. We had cameras in, in the, the team rooms so that the observers uh, could actually see exactly what was going on. Again, important thing about building trust for this one, there were six total teams from the major utilities, the water utilities in Indiana that went through this exercise. They all went through alone, separately. So they had the ability to put their leadership in the observer controller room and actually watch everything that was going on. And with the red hats and the, the experts that we had in there could be explained to them as it went along. So um, it's pretty, uh, again, nobody else got to see their vulnerability. Everybody that was in the control room was vetted so uh, they could be trusted. Um, we used two different attack vectors. The first was a brute force uh, attack on the network uh, where the hackers gained access and then were able to pivot over from the uh, administrative side, the front end of the system, pivot over to the operational side. Um, uh, we used, again, real systems, real operational systems. Um, and then the second was a, uh, a watering hole where the operator had to go out and download uh, a patch. And if he clicked on the wrong thing, then it installed, you know, malicious uh, code and again allowed the hackers to gain access. So we, the hackers, because of the vulnerabilities of these SCADA and ICS devices and because of the... Uh, the lack of security consciousness of the system architecture. Um, we actually had to slow down when we played back the hack. We had to actually slow it down so that people could could understand how quickly it, it got in. It, it actually was uh, 
it went very, very quickly. Um, what the hackers did is they got in, they reprogrammed the pumps, the service pumps, and through gaining access to the controls to the service pumps, what they were able to do is create a, uh, what they call a hammering effect within the lines. So what that does when you cycle the pumps quickly is it shoots, basically shoots blocks of water down through the pipelines and becomes very, very destructive anytime it, you know, it hits a turn or a weak spot in it and, and those blocks of water. Um, and we actually did this. Um, we didn't do it at full scale. So, but um, uh, it shot blocks of water down there, kind of like water bullets, hydraulic bullets down through the system, uh, breaking pipes. So they gained access to that. They also gained access to the uh, filter controls and turbidity reports. So much like you saw in a Stutznet attack where they went in and changed things and the controllers couldn't see that things were being changed. They were getting a false feed. So um, um, that's, what, uh, that's what they did. So um, we actually had the, uh, like I said, they, on, on site, you could see the water jack hammering out of the pipe and we had the workers from each team standing there, and uh, they, they were they were amazed. So they're, and then the controllers couldn't see what was happening. They had no idea that this was happening. So the the guys in the field actually had to call them and say, "Hey, listen, this I mean, this is what's happening." They're like, "I'm looking at my controls, and there's that's that's not what's happening." They're like, "Listen, it's we're watching it, you know." So. It was very, very interesting um, to see their reaction to that. The other thing was is their, the water treatment plant operator had to figure out what was going on also. So once the pump started cycling, you know, he had lost control of the PLCs. He had lost control of, of the operational systems. So a very interesting uh, uh, byproduct of this exercise was the fact that your operators have to not only understand the new technologies, the PLCs, the SCADA ICS devices that are coming out, but they also have to understand how to take those things offline and run the plan in manual. So, which is, uh, which is a very important lesson, not just for this exercise, but I think a lesson that uh, a lot of people out there are gonna need to, need to understand as we embrace technology. So when the technology fails, how do you get your grid back up? How do you get your water pumping again? You know, um, that's why uh, I own a very old truck that doesn't have a computer in it. So, the uh, team structure, what we did out of those six teams, we had a utility supervisor and a utility operator. So actual hands-on person and a mid-level person. And that mid-level person would have been responsible for, you know, the first tier of emergency response. You know, he or she should know what to do. If something bad was happening, the operator had to know the control systems. And we, we, we built a kind of a generic control system so that uh, regardless of what system, if you had a Rockwell or if you're working with Engerson House or whatever, you could use this the same system. But that was the team that was actually in the control room. The utility observers, the ones that, that uh, um, could observe it. Exercise control, those were, that was the Purdue University, Indiana University, uh, students and faculty that, that helped out with it. And then an exercise operator, which was kind of a facilitator to make sure that everything stayed on track, the timelines were hit, the people were picking up on, on, on the clues that they were supposed to be picking up on. So we had to build a structure like that um, to, to keep it complex. So at the end of the exercise, after running through those two attack vectors <clears throat> and going through those two scenarios, the one where they, uh, you, you know, they used a brute force and they got in and cycled the pump, the second one where they did the, the watering hole and then they went and mixed the chemicals, 
we brought the teams into the control room and you can see this is a picture of of uh, of uh, the teams and uh, Landon Lewis from uh, from uh, Ponderance there uh, great great phenomenal security guy here in Indiana um, and we did what we call the big reveal so um, with the watering hole the the software that got installed the malware that got installed was a was a keylogger so um, we actually showed them here's your guy type and guy or gal typing in your password you know here's you know here's here's exactly what happened here's here's the code installed here here is your person putting in i mean typing the stuff out and you would be amazed at how many people had no clue that that technology existed and that's fairly simple i mean it, it really is but you know, the value of this is these people that they're sitting there uh, uh, as observers were high-level leadership within utility companies. So, um, and uh, you can see some of the quotes. It was my light bulb moment. You know, like, holy cow, look how vulnerable we, we really are. Um, uh, yeah, and I like the last one, holy cow. You, you know, just... Uh, what do, you, what do you say when you watch somebody get into your industrial control system and start cycling your pumps within two to three minutes from start to finish? So um, the value-added takeaways from this exercise was first was the facility is amazing. You know, um, the ability to do research in an environment like that, the ability to do complex training in an environment like that, the ability to replicate environments <clears throat> that uh, um, that can't be taken offline but still have the level of realism um, is is just incredible um, the the level of realism in the exercise itself uh, was was incredibly valuable the fact that it was multi-echelon that we had operators people in the field uh, we had people in the control room high-level executives all watching it um, the networking with other experts. There's a saying in, in, in emergency response, and that is you never want to meet at the point of an incident. All right, so the value for any of you who go on and, and do anything in risk or do anything in, in compliance or do anything in security, whatever you go into, understand the relationships that you need before it becomes a crisis. Know who you need to know. Often you don't know who you need to know, so try to know everybody. But, you know, we, we did a, a large tabletop exercise with a 2 to $4 billion company here in West Lafayette recently. <clears throat> and um, they had no clue who they were supposed to report stuff to. So, um, you know, the, the, um, the legal folks, you know, they had cybersecurity insurance, but they didn't know who... The insurance or if the insurance would insist upon a particular vendor if there was an incident so I mean th those are the types of things you need to work through before you have an incident because when, when it gets to an incident time is your worst enemy the longer an incident goes on the the more the more damage is being done so understanding those available um, resources uh, and, and I want to talk about uh, this really is kind of my last my last slide, but um, I want to talk about a couple other things that I think are incredibly valuable that have that have come up since then. And uh, I call myself a cyber optimist and I call myself a cyber optimist because, <clears throat> you know, because of great people like 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 you, they're in this in this space and have the ability to make a difference. All right. The United States government should never ever purchase a piece of equipment that cannot be updated, 
that cannot have a password changed, that is not built with security in mind when it was engineered. All right. We have come too far in technology and we've come too far in security to accept the minimal security standards out there. And, and I know I sound like I'm, I'm, I'm preaching to you, but imagine this and it's 100% possible. You go to your apartment or home tonight and let's say that you, you're a techie like I am. I like new tech things. And you've got, you know, your environmental control system. You know, you don't have a thermostat anymore, right? You've got an environmental control system. And you've got cameras outside and you've got automatic locks and all that other stuff. And you have a system that is built by somebody who does not consider security when they engineer the product. All right. So the password can't be reset. Um, you, you, it's got a default password on it. So you go to your house <clears throat> and your door is locked and you can't get out. And your thermostat starts going up and your refrigerator turns off. Now, this is, this is all hypothetical, right? I mean, unless you're, you know, somebody incredibly important, nobody's, I'm not going to do that to me. I'm not that important. But the possibility is there. The possibility is there. You know, you get a message that says, unless you pay me so many Bitcoins, it's going to get really hot. You know, um, it's all possible because the lack of concern for security in our commercial products out there. And that has infiltrated the systems, the legacy systems that, are, that our government uses today. That has infiltrated our utilities. That has infiltrated our military systems. You know, when you think about the government purchasing things, you know, um, they go with lowest bidder. I mean, that's kind of scary when you're you drive in a tank and you realize it was built by the lowest bidder or flying in an aircraft. But so one of the takeaways from this was is, is that, um, you know, there's a big push for, for us in Indiana to insist that when the United States government, when the state purchases equipment, that it's built securely and that it can be updated. So, um, again, you guys have the, the ability to, to, to make that stuff happen by considering you know, uh, considering security and those aspects in, in, uh, in the future. The other thing is creating a culture of security. <clears throat> you know, um, uh, when I grew up, we had television and on television, you had five channels and on Saturday morning, when you're sitting there watching cartoons or Sunday morning, when you're watching action theater or whatever, you know, you had Freddie Kilowatt who came out and said, don't stick your finger in the light socket. You know, it was a safety message because we built a culture of safety around electricity. Where's our culture of safety around cybersecurity, around technology? You know, it doesn't exist. So smart companies are starting to build that into it. There's another incident I, I didn't put in here about the guy in Pennsylvania who turned off all the, the water meters in five states because he was a disgruntled employee. So, um, so building that culture of, of safety, um, it, it, you have to make people aware of it, all right? Um, because you could be getting on that next aircraft that has a counterfeit chip on it and it's getting, the GPS is getting spoofed by a Russian trawler, you know, that, that could be you. So if, if we don't have that, 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 that integrity. So, um, yeah, so, uh, you know, again, I'm an optimist because I believe that 
as we move forward and we embrace technology. And we've got IoT and blockchain and machine learning and, and, and AI and quantum computing and all kinds of stuff that's just around the corner. You're going to see it in your lifetime, you know. And uh, we've got to have the conversations about security as we do the research and develop those technologies. Because IoT, it's going to turn the world upside down trying to secure everything. So uh, it's a big deal. So, so anyway, um, that's kind of my spiel. Um, again, uh, I'll answer any questions, anything from my background in the military. I worked for the Secretary of Commerce doing economic development for cybersecurity. I worked closely with the Israelis on, on uh, cybersecurity and uh, training and exercises is, is kind of a passion of mine. And, and uh, right now I'm working in the convergence of uh, regulations and privacy, security, uh, and risk. So where they all converge together. So particularly from a business aspect. So, so if you have any questions, I'll be happy to, to answer them. And was I that good? Sweet. They should pay me for this. Yes, sir. So, so with all these systems, like your, your ICS and SCADA systems, like you, about how you said about they can't be upgraded and how, and how they weren't built with security in mind. So with this problem, what, what do you believe is the solution for these systems that we've been using that really can't do all of it? And you said that these companies don't want to upgrade it because of the cost that will end up going to the consumer. So what would you believe is the solution there? Um, I hate to say that it's regulation um, because I'm not a big government person. Um, but I, I think there's a level of accountability of any business uh, particularly in businesses that uh, uh, have the ability to affect the public welfare. Uh, so I think, you know, I think there needs to be standards on it. Um, I think that uh, not just, you know, when we did this exercise, there were so many aha moments on the big reveal from these executives that they don't even understand how insecure they are, you know, and, and, and God bless the geeks of the world, right? So I have a saying, the geeks will inherit the earth. So, you know, God bless the engineers, but never, they cannot talk to the C-suite. So, so there has to be a level of education uh, to both the, the consumer and to the, uh, and to the companies that are responsible for providing, uh, you know, that, uh, that, uh, that infrastructure. And, um, you know, we, we waste a lot of money on a lot of things that aren't relevant and we need to invest in security. So I just don't know any other way around it other than for utilities to invest in secure products. So it's a great question though. So yes, sir. Um, after you saw and met with everyone and after they saw the scenario and the vulnerabilities, was there a big push to change it or was it kind of like, oh, that's scary. And then <laughs> kind of go about their regular day and don't change anything. Um, well, what we do know is um, the last I heard, the Indiana Utility Regulatory Commission was requiring the, the, um, the uh, utilities to come in and brief the concept for their security plans. So which is, um, I'm not sure if Indiana's the only one that does that, but we definitely were the one of the first, if not the first, to insist upon that. Um, and the utilities are doing that willingly. So um, it's a command performance, you know, they're regulated, um, but there doesn't seem to be a lot of hesitation uh, in it. 
Um, I think from a business aspect, you know, it's always, listen, you got to be in business to stay in business. So you've always got to be worried about the bottom line. So I think maybe some of the smaller uh, utilities probably didn't go back and put the emphasis on, and maybe some of the large ones, didn't put the emphasis on security that, that maybe they needed to. But um, at the end of the day, our role was to make them aware. So um, at that point, once we make them aware, we, we hand it back over to, you know, to the industry to, to, to change. I would like to think that people went back and made some changes. Yeah, so. Well, yeah, it definitely, um, so there's, there's two things there. First of all, you know, we're showing them that it's possible. The second thing is, is now they have no excuse. So when they do get caught in a regulatory violation or whatever, um, then they, they have no excuse and they, they can be hold accountable, held accountable. So, or should be held accountable. But yeah, it's always the question, you know, once, once you know, but, but understand something we've lost in American culture is what we call acceptable risk. And, and acceptable risk is, is, it's a difficult concept. We went to a zero risk concept for a long time. You know, everything has to be perfect. You know, there's no excuse for, for somebody getting injured or whatever. Well, the fact of the matter is, is you, you can, if you think of cybersecurity as like security on your house, you know, there's so many factors that determine what you decide to do to protect your house. If you live in a questionable neighborhood, you know, maybe you put locks on the, on the windows. You know, maybe you put bars on, on the windows or on the door. You can put a bank vault door on, on your front door, all right? But if a meteor falls on your house, it doesn't help. So risk never goes away. So whether you admit it or not, whether corporate America admits it or not, whether utilities admit it or not, whether government admits it or not, risk always exists. And somebody at some point is saying, this is an acceptable level of risk. You know, my, my personal philosophy is, is that you should do the risk analysis and make those conscious decisions. And those become driven by business, all right? Security guys will, man, we'll, we'll patch everything to the end of the day. You can give us a budget of a zillion dollars, we'll spend every, every dime of it. You know, but at some point, the, the business owner has to say, I've got employees to pay, I've got a product that I need to be competitive with, this is an acceptable level of risk. So the best way to do that is do analysis on, on what your vulnerabilities are and then put emphasis on the ones that really matter. So when we work with companies on risk assessments, we ask them the question, where are your crown jewels? You know, what is the one thing that if it happened would put you out of business, would delay, would cost you billions of dollars? What is the one system that would go down? Where do you store that information? And you work out from there. Okay, we're probably about at time, so let's give that a round of applause. Thank you.